Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that told me last week, Nick, you had a couple of brain farts, but thank God I didn't hear them. He is the captain. I might not have heard them, but I smelt them. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Tonight we are drinking Presumed Innocent IPA by the good folks at Legal Draft Beer Company. Garage grade, three and three quarter bottle caps out of five. Presumed Innocent is a very approachable IPA with a light haze and tangy aromatic hop note. And the Legal Draft Beer Company has a law and order feel when naming their beer, so it's a natural fit here on True Crime Garage. And this great Texas beer was brought to us by our friends right here. First up, we have Shannon in Haley, Idaho. And a big shout out to Colleen from Villa Park, Illinois. All right, let's go all the way out to Auckland, New Zealand, and give a cheers, a big cheers, to our friend Michelle. And a big cheers to Janessa in Pittsburgh. And here's a high five to Molly in St. Louis, Missouri. And last but not least, we have Charlotte in Wheaton, Illinois. Thanks, everybody, for going to TrueCrimeGarage.com and helping us out with this week's show. I want to encourage everybody to go check out the website, check out our blog, and check out the store page. And you can check out all of our old episodes for free if you download the Stitcher app. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. On December 23, 1974, Rachel Trillica, Renee Wilson, and Julianne Mosley set out on a shopping trip to purchase Christmas gifts for their friends and family. They drove off to South Fort Worth, Texas to a shopping mall. Rachel, the oldest of the three, parked her car in the upper level near the Sears store. 
The three girls were supposed to be home by 4 p.m., but they never returned. Later, a letter arrived saying the girls took off to get away for a week or so. The families early on strongly believed foul play was involved. And as the slow days stretched into long years, the puzzle remained unsolved. What happened to these girls and why? Now, one thing's for sure, says Rayanne Mosley, the mother of the youngest missing girl, that somebody knows something. Somebody knows for sure what happened to these girls. So, Captain, let's talk about some suspects here. There are some interesting ones. Now, I do want to state that publicly, the law enforcement involved throughout the years has been a little cagey. Let's say that's a good word as to whether there are actual suspects. And what I mean by that is in 1974, in December, when they went missing, we have several news articles where the police state publicly, we have no suspects. Then we have uh, a year or two later where we have them stating publicly, well, we've narrowed it down after speaking and following hundreds of leads, interviewing people and such, our investigation, this is what we've come up with. We've narrowed it down to less than five individual suspects. Mm -hmm. And then I believe it was 1981 when we hear that law enforcement is strongly considering the following theory, that multiple persons were involved in the abduction of all three girls and that all three girls are now deceased, abducted by a group, maybe as many as five guys. And it's likely one of the girls knew and or probably trusted one of the abductors. Mm-hmm. So I think we can see that it, they were working that angle for several reasons. We discussed on yesterday's show the different eyewitnesses accounts, and some of those they reference men or a group of men. Um, so I see why they're saying that we're working that angle and work that angle at some point in this investigation. Well, even if there wasn't any eyewitnesses, we, we could assume that it'd be easier to abduct these three if there was more than one individual and where they abduct, were abducted from mm-hmm. being a mall, you right. know, a, a very public location. Yes, you would you would need to corral the girls quickly into some type of vehicle or vehicles. You know, we saw in the eyewitness accounts multiple vehicles being mentioned from dis- different eyewitnesses. Maybe all these vehicles mentioned by different eyewitnesses were involved. Mm-hmm. So let's get into something that we've been talking a lot about on our other show off the record. You know, lately we've discussed the West Memphis three case quite a bit. And the thought that, that we've discussed here is, is the real killer in that case, a known suspect or an unknown suspect, meaning a known suspect would be somebody where we know their name because either a, they are suspected by police media or general public. Right. Or B, someone's name that has come up somewhere within the story or the case itself, that their name appears in the case file for any number of reasons. You know, whether they're a neighbor, parent, uncle, or identified by description, you know, like the man at the Bojangles restaurant would be right. an example of that. Then we have the thought of an unknown suspect. This is someone whose name and or description is not known to police, media, or general public. Someone whose name would not be found in the case file. Here in this case, we have some known characters. Did they have involvement? Was there someone or someones that were up to no good or planning an abduction or murder? This would be 
someone close to the victims? Or was it a stranger, someone that spotted the girls in the mall or in the parking lot and decided to abduct them? So let's look at known suspects, let's say. All right, so Thomas or Tommy Trillica, Rachel's husband. A lot of people have questioned this dude because I think when examining the situation, there are some things that could stand out that, that would say, well, maybe there there's a motive here or are motives here. Right. Uh, we should also include Deborah. Now, Deborah is Rachel's older sister. Deborah was 19 on the day that uh, the day in question. So she was two years older than Rachel. Tommy, then only 21 years old at the time of the disappearance, had already lost both of his parents and was di- was a divorced father of a two-year-old son. He and Rachel had been married only about six months. So people point out that uh, she is only in high school and was 16 at the time of their marriage. Uh, people point out that that is weird. I don't know how that, maybe it is weird, but I don't know how it leads to triple homicide. Mm-hmm. Now, past the age difference, one thing that often stands out, and m- many people point to this right here, is that Tommy and Deborah, Rachel's older sister, were previously in a relationship together. They were even engaged for a short period of time. As a matter of fact, we know that that's how Rachel would end up meeting Tommy and later they're married. That's weird. That's weird. Yes. So, and, and then to further that theory along, and what I'm getting at is that either Deborah was somehow guilty of something or Tommy is guilty or they both together were involved in, in the disappearance of these three girls. But to further that theory along, we have that Deborah prior to the disappearance of the three girls had an argument with her boyfriend and she did, she moved in with her little sister and Tommy for a short stay with the newlyweds. So some have suggested one or both Deborah and Tommy were somehow involved uh, in this case and that they were having some kind of secret relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, Deborah says that out of all of the bad things that has happened to her in different po- periods of her life, the disappearance of her sister is by far the worst thing. And when she's looking back, she says, quote, we had a special bond. According to Deborah, both girls were afraid of their father. Uh, she says their father had a hot temper. Now he was also a sick man who was dying of cancer at the time of the disappearance and was buried that summer after the girls disappeared. Deborah recalls that Rachel woke her that morning of the disappearance and asked her to go shopping. So we mentioned this in yesterday's show that we have other individuals that were asked to go on the shopping trip that didn't participate for whatever reason. Right. Tommy being one of them. No, Terry being oh, one of okay, them. Okay. Sorry. I keep getting the, the middle one's boyfriend and the oldest one's husband confused. So what, what's strange here though, is we have Deborah who falls under the public eye suspicion Yet she is somebody that was asked to go on the shopping trip and she does not go. She says she was not feeling well that day. She Mm -hmm. stayed home in bed instead. And Deborah was there, was still staying at that home the next morning when Tommy retrieved the letter out of the mailbox. Well, I think the other thing that's weird here is if Tommy was planning to 
get rid of his wife so then he could be with his wife's sister, then you have a scenario where his wife or the his mistress was asked to go on the shopping trip. You know, now we have uh, Renee's boyfriend, Terry, was asked to go on the shopping trip. And then it's like, it's, it just seems like a bad time if you're going to try to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kill this person and get them out of your life that you're going to do so, one, in a public place, which is maybe not so weird because you are married to her, but she's going to be with multiple people. Right. And if she's with multiple people, it's like, so now you're going to kill three people to ki- take care of this problem. You know, it seems like the motive isn't strong enough for that. I agree. And that's why yesterday I brought up, you know, who is the target when you have multiple individuals together, when you have a group of people together that are abducted or killed, who is the target? Were all three of them a target or was one of them specifically targeted for a specific reason? And like you just pointed out, captain, if, Let's go through this motive for a second, because to me, it just it's flimsy. It's so damn flimsy, because if he wanted to knock off his wife, mm-hmm. if if for some reason you're like, OK, well, this is the best time to do this. Oh, snap. She's got two other people joining her on the shopping trip. Well, I'm just going to do it at another time. Right. I'm not going to I'm not going to go out and abduct and kill three people because I'm trying to get rid of one. I'm just going to do it at another time. And same goes for Deborah. If she felt the same way, she would just do it at another time. The other thing too, if the two were involved together, if the two, if Deborah and Tommy wanted the sister out of the picture, mm-hmm. you would think they could orchestrate a better plan than this. Like you said, abducting multiple people from a public place very, very risky business. I just, but we also have the, we have possible DNA on the letter that was sent and it didn't match Tommy. We don't know that it didn't match Tommy. What Mm -hmm. we do know is it doesn't match anybody in quote unquote, their database. We don't know who is sitting in that database. It doesn't mean everybody on the planet is in there. So Mm -hmm. we do have years later, we have the words of Tommy. We have the words of Deborah. We have Tommy who says, Look, there was no uneasiness between uh, anything going on there. You know, there wasn't, it wasn't weird that her sister that I was once engaged to came to stay with us for a short period of time. Just because on the outside looking in, it seems weird to everybody. It didn't seem weird to Tommy. Well, so he stated for the record that there wasn't, they weren't having an affair or anything. And and Deborah states the same thing, says that she insists that the romance was long over. Well, of course, it would have to be. I mean, <laughs> in order to marry her sister. I mean, like, yeah. you, you know, at, at some point, like, and for them to be, they're still friends. You know, the sisters still being friends. You would think that would have to be dead and gone on, on both ends. Right. But, you know, it's even gr- even more interesting and i think that backs us up a little bit and of course if you consider these two people to be suspects then yes you're hearing it from the suspects mouths themselves but in an interview deborah she she says look it yeah this wasn't the relationship that i had with tommy before my sister married her it was not a serious relationship then the interviewer says well i thought you were engaged and see she outwardly says yes 
we had been engaged, if you want to call mm-hmm. it that, but it she didn't consider it a real engagement. Right. And she's like kind of says it waving it off and rolling her eyes as she's doing the interview. Yeah, but yeah, again, I mean how many times have we done kind of silly things as we're as younger adults or just teenagers and went now looking back on it in a couple of years ago, that was silly. And we don't know the full extent of it. I love that these, I love these people. And right. I look, look, I shouldn't, I shouldn't go off on, uh, and witch hunt anybody here because speculate you can do it. Speculating about cases and suspects is what you and I do. So mm-hmm. I shouldn't get on to anybody else for doing that. The only thing that I have a bit of an issue with is that I think that sometimes people stumble upon bad information in a case and then they use it to back up their point or their theory. Right. And what I mean by this is I saw several people that, that were suggesting that Deborah and or Tommy should be big time suspects in this case, because once they, they were, they were engaged together. Then he goes off and marries Rachel. Then Rachel disappears. And then Deborah and Tommy end up married together and have a kid together. That was the ammunition that people were using to back up that theory. The problem with that theory and with uh-huh. that ammunition is Tommy and Deborah never got married. They never had a child together. Right. What happened, what, what happened in real life was that Tommy moved away. There was some bitterness between him and Rachel's family after the disappearance. Mm-hmm. He moved away. He still lives in Texas to this day. I, I know who he works for and I can't think of. Uh, let's offhand. not give him, give away all his information. Well, he's, he is married. So I can see where, where people get that wrong, right. that he married Deborah. He is married and he went on to have a family. He lives elsewhere in Texas. Mm. I don't get the vibe from what I could find about him. I didn't get the vibe that he's running from anything. Right. Well, and, well, he could be running from their family on some level, but you know, their daughter goes missing. He is somewhat a suspect. He has to be a suspect, right? I mean, cause the husband always did it mm-hmm. and they might've been throwing some shade at him and he just was like, you know, at some point you have to move on with your life. Right. Right. And so let's talk uh, about the little brother of these two girls, uh, rusty. So we were talking about Rachel and her, and her older sister, Deborah. And well, the two of them have a younger brother, rusty. Now, rusty says that the letter, the letter that we discussed yesterday holds particular interest regarding the case for him. Okay. He is certain that Rachel did not write that letter. Rusty at the time, at one time said publicly that he was sure that Rachel and only Rachel is still alive and that it is only a matter of time, perhaps even days before he finds her. According to Rusty, following the disappearance, there were several reports that the two older girls had been spotted at different locations. And he references the 17 and the 14 year old. Yeah. He references a gas station, mm-hmm. a Walmart, uh, a country store. And I think he actually references more places than that, but he says that initially in uh-huh. the early portions of the, the case in the first couple of years, he dismissed these reports as, as a sham, uh, in, in the beginning, but he became convinced that these were genuine sightings after meeting a private investigator by the name of Dan James, okay, James, okay. hold on, go ahead. Sorry. I, I don't, I don't want, 
I'm trying to follow your story. And normally when you're telling parts of the story, I, I'm picturing things. I'm having a hard time right now. So we have, they go missing in 74. There's a bunch of reports, eyewitness sightings. Right? Right. The brother doesn't believe that the letter was written by Rachel. Right. Believes that she's alive, but the other two are not. And when does this private investigator come into the picture? Okay, so Rusty met him 20 years later in 1995. Okay, so this is 20 years later. Right. Okay. So that's what's difficult about this case. Okay. All right, and we have Dan James, the private investigator, as well as Rusty Arnold, who is the brother of one of the missing girls. We have these two individuals stating that there are multiple sightings of the two older girls at different locations. Yeah. And then later on, we're going to hear the brothers say that only Rachel is alive and that there had been continued sightings of Rachel and only Rachel. Mm. So, all right. We said that he became convinced of these sightings, that they were real after meeting private investigator Dan James. Uh, We just said that they met in 1995. When they met, Dan tells Rusty that he's been following the case since 1975. Right. Now, technically, the private investigator was never hired by any of the three families. James has stated publicly that he hasn't received a penny in compensation for his work. According to James, what he has received is death threats from anonymous callers, warning him away from the case. Now, according to James, several, quote, this is his words, credible witnesses, end quote, say they've spotted Rachel since the disappearance. He says one was in 1998 around Christmas. Now, private investigator James believes that Rachel visits Fort Worth during the Christmas season each year Mm. and maintains that someone is, quote, shrouding and manufacturing evidence. And what he says was at first an effort to keep the two older girls away. Now he thinks only Rachel survives. He says, I believe that Renee Wilson is not alive. I believe that something dreadfully wrong and probably fatally occurred involving Julianne Mosley, he says. He is evasive about what he thinks happened or who he believes can be held accountable. So, yes, he has a theory. No, he won't discuss it, except to say that someone close to one of the girls had something to do with the disappearance. All right. Okay. I'm just trying to wrap my head around this idea. So all three girls go missing. There's sightings. He doesn't believe these sightings at first. 20 years later, he starts believing these sightings are correct. Keep in mind, the private investigator apparently has believed these sightings the entire time. Right. So after meeting the private investigator, this guy has convinced him, convinced the brother that these sightings are real. Mm -hmm. So this private investigator probably has some other theories that he's probably convinced him on. And I don't know what these theories are, but the fact that somebody's there's somebody that's still responsible for their abduction, Mm -hmm. but two of them are dead. One's still alive. And do, 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 do. She comes back to town every Christmas. Yeah. Okay. So is she coming back to town with somebody? Is she still, did they take all three girls, hold them captive, 
and they've just let her live and the other ones they didn't let live or well is okay she just roaming the streets of Fort Worth by herself so Dan James the private investigator is pretty cryptic about his theory yeah cuz he doesn't want to sound like a cuckoo bird but from sitting through multiple interviews with him and piecing together his words here's what i can tell you that that i believe that he believes is that all three girls were abducted by somebody that knew at least one of the girls okay okay that was close to at least one of the girls with the idea that the two older girls were the target that they would be kept alive for whatever reason right so under this theory my guess would be that the the believed abductor that was close to quote unquote one of the victims probably would have been close to either Renee or Rachel, one of the two older girls. Right. Because those apparently were the target and Julianne Mosley just happened to be there. And he states that under this theory, that something dreadfully wrong fatality Mm -hmm. happened to the young girl that during the course of either abducting these girls or, or holding them that something unplanned happened to the young girl and she died fairly early on into being held captive or being part of whatever this weird situation is. Right. Then if we continue on down the road of the theory is that the two older girls were alive for some period of time because he believes they were seen together at different locations again, but right, right, right. But that still points to the idea that, they were abducted and the abductor was like, Hey, you, you know, like let them free or was in the car while they went into a gas station. I mean, that's risky. Well, and then, but then on top of that, the, the theory goes that at some point only Rachel was alive, the oldest of the three. Right. You know, that so 20 years later, 21 years later, however you want to look at it, that that's where that, that stands, that, that he has reason to believe this private investigator and Rusty believes him. Rusty states publicly that this is not just Dan James's theory. This is my theory as well. Now, what happens here is this tears the Arnold family apart. We have Rusty and Deborah, brother and sister, who spent a good amount of time looking for their sister together when they were younger. And as they grew up and grew older, it apparently it, it looks like Rusty, with the help of Dan James, became suspicious of his own sister, Deborah. Because she says publicly in regards to Dan James, she says, I know he blames me. I know he thinks I had something to do with it. And, and talking about her brother, she says, Rusty thinks that this letter that Tommy got the next day, he thinks I wrote it. And she says, I didn't write the letter. I don't know who did. I don't know what happened to my sister. I have nothing to hide. Yeah, possibly. But we've seen this in cases where somebody comes in and investigates, whether it's an author or a private investigator, I mean, he, he's calling himself a private investigator, but we don't know why he's doing this. He's not getting paid. So he's just really fascinated by the case, or is he going to use this research later for a book or whatever? So to have her not, for Deborah not to trust him, I get that part. We She might just be assuming this is what uh, Rusty believes. You see what I mean? No, he's Rusty has stated publicly um, not mentioned his sister. Well, you should have said that part. Well, I, I, I kind of <laughs> did. I said Dan James believes that well, somebody I should have been paying attention. That, that Dan James believes that someone close to one of the victims mm-hmm. was involved in the abduction. 
there is evidence to suggest that Dan James and Rusty Arnold, the brother, believe that Deborah was possibly involved in this abduction. I am. It's so crazy. Well, and we, and we have to remember, like, uh, in the Madeline McCann. Mm-hmm. Did I say that correctly? Finally. Finally. Oh, thank, a year and a half later. Uh, and then, like, in the Miss Mara Murray case, Brian Schaefer case, even the recent case that we covered, Molly Tibbetts, there are eyewitness accounts of seeing each individual. Mm-hmm. And normally those eyewitness accounts produce nothing. Or in the case of like Molly Tibbetts, there was actually a lot of eyewitness sightings and we know that those were not true. Right. So, um, but it's so strange to me and I, I think we should pause here for a second because, I mean, just put this in perspective. We have three people going missing but we have multiple eyewitnesses that see them. Family members believe those eyewitness sightings are actually real. One family member. Right, One, but also rusty. a private investigator. Correct. And and that means the abductor on some level is letting them roam. Was it of abduction as much as like you would think like if you had the opportunity to go into a gas station, you'd be like, hey, help me. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen it time and time again where that's not always the case, but they're seen multiple times together, and then later, just only Rachel being seen, mm-hmm. and then she comes back for Christmas? Right. I mean, that's strange. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. 
Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, You'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem. And it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right. Cheers. Happy birthday. It's it's his birthday week, birthday month, or what he likes to say, his birthday year. 
Well, we should. What we should mention here, Captain, is is another sad part of this story. Is not only do we have these missing kids, and then all these years later, still missing, but what we have is the aftermath and what the suspicion caused throughout these different families, or just the just having a missing child has torn apart some of these families. Right. Okay, and I won't get into the specifics of all of them, but let's let's focus in on the Arnold family for a minute because we've been talking about the obvious signs of problems that we're going to have within the Arnold family. So we have Rachel Arnold, who disappeared. We have her older sister, Deborah, that some people have suspected could know more about what happened or maybe had some involvement. And it appears that even her younger brother, Rusty Arnold, was a person not only believing that, but also driving that theory uh, and getting everybody else to believe it as well. Yeah. Now we mentioned Fran Langston earlier. She's the mother of these three and she blames private investigator Dan James for quote, poisoning Rusty's mind. Uh, She says that her family has been destroyed because of Dan James's accusations regarding uh, possible involvement by Deborah. Now, this does, regardless of how crazy this theory could be, and I do want to point this out, you know, we there are cases out there where somebody takes somebody captive and keeps them for a very long time. Cases where they let them go out into public or go out with them. I've even, I can't remember the name of the offender or the victim, but I can even recall a case where the victim who was abducted, who was being held captive, was allowed to go home and see her family at one point and then return to being held captive. It's strange. It's hard to wrap your mind around it, but it happens. Yeah. That's called marriage. (laughs) Well, and then of course we know more from a local case here, Cleveland, Ohio, where an individual took girls captive and held them for like over 12 years before one of them escaped. And this guy invited people into his home. He would have guests over to his home. He liked to entertain. Well, he was a musician. He would let his friends come over and they would do their band practice at his home. Anyway, so it does happen. It's hard to get your mind around it, but this theory, as crazy as it seems, could happen. But it does bring up, and it raises an interesting and hopeful question. Are any of these girls still alive? Yeah. You know, you have to wonder that. The well, weird like th- I said before, some of the eyewitness accounts and cases are, are completely bogus but you have to follow all those leads. But I mean, I kind of jokingly said that, I mean, that's super creepy, but what if, you know, around the Christmas time every year, whoever has Rachel is letting her go home. Well, not home. We know it's not home per se, but to Fort worth, right. Going to her hometown. You know, we don't have any accusations of visiting family members, but the thought that Dan James believes is that she returns to the Fort Worth area for some reason around Christmas time each year. Could that be some kind of reward by the captor? Like, you know, if you're if you're good all of these other days of the year, right. you're granted this one thing. You know, there's it, it unfortunately it happens. They brainwash these these uh yeah, prisoners. You, right, but you think if that is happening or if they actually believe that then they would be doing a lot of things around that time to put up flyers and this Mm -hmm. is what she could look like. She has been known to visit this area and maybe they could get her while she 
came to visit. Well, one thing I should point out that I believe here, Captain, is Rusty Arnold. Okay, well, where we have his family saying, look, his thoughts, his accusations, his theories regarding this case has destroyed our family. I agree with that 100%. But what I also agree with, and we'll have Rusty's back on, is I see him furthering the investigation and keeping the investigation of his disappeared missing sister alive all these years later. It might be the wrong tactic. It might be in poor taste. It, it might, might be the wrong theory. It might be the wrong theory. Yes, yeah. you're exactly right. And But it, it does keep the case alive. He is furthering the investigation and doing what John Walsh always says you should do. Keep your loved one's memory and image in the public eye, in the newspapers, right. on the TV. Yes. And it's weird with this private investigator because it's you want to know his motives. You know, because he is not, he's not getting paid. Yeah, but I, I don't think that the general public has a good understanding of what most private investigators do for a living. So you're, you're kind of like a, you're a contracted worker. You're, you're somebody that sits around and waits for the phone to ring uh, or get a click on your website. Yeah. Uh, and so you could go investigate a fraud or a cheating spouse, mm -hmm. or any number of cases. You know, we've seen criminal cases where we have uh, victims' families hire private investigators. It happens all the time. Yeah, or if your co-host wants to go off and do a show with Generation Y, but what, you might want to call a private investigator. Okay, but <laughs> uh, anyway. So, but the thing that I don't think that the general public understands is that. When, when a private investigator is not working a case, is not being paid to work a case, uh -huh. often, you know, you could do anything with your time. But what some of them will do is they will pick a case that's local to them and they'll say, oh, there's a reward in this case. Mm -hmm. There's $50,000 to, to, to reward somebody for information regarding this missing person or $60,000 reward for the apprehension of this suspect who mm -hmm. looks like this. So what they do is when they are not being paid for a specific case, some of them will pick up on local cases that have reward money and actively work those in their downtime at right. the chance of catching, catching some something. It's almost like a lottery ticket essentially. Mm -hmm. One thing that's somewhat tied to this possibility of the girls still being alive or one of them being alive is we did have a situation in this case throughout the years where a lady caller, and I have to apologize to you, Captain, and all the good garage people out there. All right. My notes are incomplete on this story. But what occurred was we have a lady caller that reached out to one of the victim's mothers. Mm -hmm. And they had several phone calls throughout weeks and maybe months, mm -hmm. which led to the two of them meeting together in person. Now the lady caller insisted that she was one of the missing girls, that she was the daughter of the woman that she was contacting. What I'm apologizing for is I don't remember which daughter she was claiming to be or which mother she was calling. Right. Unfortunately, two of the three mothers have passed away as of this date of our recording. Um, but regardless, she contacted one of them. Okay. So you have this, um, nutty person right and she's calling the one of the missing girls mothers mm -hmm. and stating that she's one of the missing girls correct okay continue well they meet and at the insistence of someone i don't know if it was the missing girl's mother or somebody in the missing girl's family right 
the person that was calling uh, was subjected to a DNA test. And it was determined that they were not who they were claiming to be. So this is years. I'm I'm assuming this is years and years later. Yeah, yeah. Because it because you know you would think at some point if it were shortly after you'd be able to look at the individual and go, nope, you're not, you're not Renee, you're not uh, Julianne. Right. Um, I so think this was kind of, right, but I think this could have been 25, maybe even 30 years right. after the fact. I believe two of the three. Uh, victims' no. mothers passed away within the last five years. What kind of dick nose do you got to be? I mean, who does that? Scam artist. 20 Con years artist. later. Th- yeah. Giant dick nose. Dick nose so big you can't even fit through doors. So do we have other possible suspects? And, and the answer is yes. Yes, we do. And I believe... Much better suspects than what we have discussed so far. I want to be clear about as far as Deborah and Tommy go, uh, individuals that were related to victims. As far as them being suspects, all that I could find, that's in the public's eye. That's on these website forums. It's not never been any law enforcement stating that either of these two are suspected of anything. And furthermore, we have the Charlie Project that states in all three cases, we've classified this. We believe it to be a non-family abduction. Much better suspects. Let's talk about this. Now, obviously, we know that there were, there was an active serial killer or killers in Texas in the 70s. We have the Texas Killing Field case was starting up in the 1970s. And normally, I would red flag something like that and go into it here. Unfortunately, that's a huge case that would take up way too much time. And they're likely, or at least I believe, there is not a strong connection with the exception of, of a couple of items, okay? The first thing that I would, would take into consideration, Texas is a larger the, larger state than mo- almost every state in the United States, right? Yeah. So that alone makes the connection to the missing Fort Worth trio case even less likely. But some things of interest in that case that should be noted. So the girls abducted and killed in the early 70s in the Killing Fields case, ages 12 years old to 19 years old, most of them 14. So age of the victim fits our victimology here. All were abducted without a man or boy present. And on three times, two girls were taken at the same time. So multiple persons abducted at once. And there was a break in the action down in the Killing Fields case. There are no known victims from the end of September 1974 to the beginning of May 1977. So did the killer or killers move away, relocate for work? Did they end up for some reason in the greater Fort Worth, Texas area and taking three girls from a mall parking lot in December of 1974? The other thing, too, is some of the later believed victims in the killing fields were never found, which is of course the case with the missing Fort Worth trio. I did look at other known serials and I looked at the ones where the victimology was a good fit for this case for the trio's disappearance, but all of the ones that I could find either they were locked up at the time they were not in the area at the time or would have been too young of an age at the time. But wait, I did find one. I found one. So this guy is not completely unknown, but this is not an easy to find person. And it is speculative. Okay. 
So the individual is named Lloyd Lee Welch Jr. He goes by Mike. Welch was convicted in the state of Delaware in 1997 for sexually assaulting a 10-year-old girl. He has a lengthier criminal record than that, including burglaries and other charges against children. But for the sake of time here, Captain, we're not going to go into all of that. What's, what's important here is how do we get him to be involved in this case that took place all the way in Texas? We have September 2017. Welch, who is in his early 60s as of last year, he pled guilty to the first-degree murder of 12-year-old Sheila and 10-year-old Catherine Lyons, who were taken from or taken just shortly after leaving the Wheaton Shopping Plaza in the state of Maryland in March of 1975. How does that bring us to our case? Well, Lloyd Welch was a known drifter, and he was employed as a ride operator at a traveling carnival. He has had multiple convictions for sexual offenses against young girls. From the years of 1974 to 1997, Welch was in at least two dozen locations, including Washington, D.C. and Texas. In fact, in January of 1974, he was confirmed to have been in Austin, Texas. Then, in March of 1975, he was confirmed to have been in Wheaton, Maryland. It is believed he was in Texas from January of 74 until sometime early 1975. He was in both areas at the time all of these girls went missing from a shopping mall. With Welch being a drifter and traveling with a carnival for his job, it is possible he was in Texas in December of 1974. As a drifter, obviously it makes sense he would have remained under the radar for years and years. Police are also looking for information on any security guards who would have worked at either mall, including information on Welch's longtime girlfriend, Helen Craver. They dated for like 10 years, most of it spanning over the 1970s. They were always on the road and had no permanent home or address. Helen is noted to have worked as mall security from time to time. Which would go with that eyewitness report. Right. And now I do want to, you know, kind of breeze through that real quickly here, but we're talking about an individual that many, many, many years later, just last year, he pled guilty to first degree murder of two girls about the same age as the victims that we're talking about here, who he abducted either from a mall or shortly after leaving a mall way back in 1975. Yeah, it just seems like in this theory, there's there's too many dots connecting to not be somebody that we should be looking into. Yeah, and if you're wondering, hey, he, he confessed to this crime, he pled guilty to this double homicide from 1975, what's holding him back from telling law enforcement that he was involved in the missing trio case? Um, one, Texas has the death penalty and they have a pretty quick route to getting there as well. So that would deter him from doing that. Number one, number two, this guy's confession is the most bullshit confession I've ever seen in my life. And what I mean by that, he's not lying. He's not lying that he killed the girls. He, he's lying. His confession itself is a lie. What I mean by that is he, he implies that other people were involved, that he didn't actually do the killing himself, that he was just, 
somehow involved in the abduction and somehow involved in getting rid of the bodies later. He's never led law enforcement to the bodies and law enforcement has come out and said, look, we understand that this is what this dude's confession is. But at the end of the day, he's the one that pled guilty to first degree murder on both of these accounts. The other people that he's named throughout the course of his confession, we either believe that they had no involvement or some of these individuals have passed away or there's no evidence to connect them to the case. Yeah. And you wonder if he's not leading them to the bodies because that's a dumping ground for some of his other victims as well. That's interesting that you say that that very well could be. And the other thought on him too, captain, I would, I would suspect is that, is it possible that if they were to find the bodies, that his story, his confession doesn't so much, line up. The problem with him is I don't think that he's just going to come right out and say, Hey, I was involved in this murder. I was involved in this abduction or that abduction or this murder. The way they got to this guy was they found stuff on him. They found things to put him in place of that abduction in 1975 in Maryland, things that he couldn't dismiss away. He couldn't explain away why he was there. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we know throughout the course of his lifetime, he would go on to have sexual assault offenses against girls of the same or similar age. Now I do want to kind of put a uh, hopeful spin on this story and maybe, maybe to bring some people to, to think that something good could happen soon. Maybe we could get some answers in this case. And that would be, I want to cycle back to Rusty Arnold. We talked about him. He's the brother of one of the missing individuals. Recently, he has said that he has, quote, a hunch that vehicles submerged in the Benbrook Lake may have clues to the 1974 disappearance of his sister and the two other girls from Fort Worth, Texas. Arnold said in August of this year on Facebook that he and his group of volunteers had had reached their goal of $10,000. This money is to pay divers to pull out three vehicles sitting deep at the bottom of the lake. Okay. So we may soon find out if he is right, weather permitting. The cars are scheduled to be pulled out September 22nd of this year by the divers and crew to see if there are any clues to the disappearance of Rachel Trillica, Renee Wilson, and Julianne Mosley. So just a few days away. Correct. The case is listed as active and open by Fort Worth police, but according to Rusty Arnold, he said that they are not involved in the search at the lake. So the group of volunteers are focusing on these three cars because they believe one of the vehicles belongs to a person of interest in the case who knew one or all of the girls. Rusty Arnold did not disclose the name of that person of interest, but said publicly at the same time, the girls went missing. We believe the vehicle he was driving also disappeared. Arnold added, we sat around coming up with theories and we discovered that the person of interest lived within five miles of Benbrook Lake at the time. Arnold and his group have been working on the lake theory for four years, getting the help of a friend who used sonar and found the vehicles at the bottom of Benbrook Lake. This lake is in Southwest Fort Worth. 
and it's about 10 miles from the shopping center. So lots of good news there, Captain. They have a lead. They have something to follow up on, something that could be concrete. I mean, they know that these vehicles exist, that they're in the lake. And it sounds to me, after raising the money and after going through a couple of trial runs or practice dives, whatever you want to call it, they believe that this Saturday they may be able to remove all three of these vehicles. Who knows what they may find in the course of those dives. It might be some time before it's revealed what they found or what significance it has to the case. You know, if you don't find a body in the vehicle or remains of one of the victims in the vehicle, it's not going to be so obvious. You're going to have to sift through what is found and determine if it holds any value, evidentiary value in the disappearance of these three girls. But interesting and a little bit of a little ray of hope that the remaining family members, we're talking over 40 years ago, that a lot of these people lived the rest of their lives and never got any answers as far as what happened to their loved one. Now, maybe the remaining family members can get that answer, those answers that they deserve and that they need. They need that. They need some type of closure. They need some type of reconciliation regarding this matter, this open wound that they have had for over 40 years. All right. Do we have a recommended reading this week? Yes, sir. We do. This week we are recommending Sons of Cain, a history of serial killers from the Stone Age to the present by Peter Vronsky. And I tell you what, Peter's got some very interesting thoughts and theories regarding serial killers and the history of serial killers. I would offer you a uh, detailed description regarding the book. However, what it says right on the front cover is the best example of what you're going to read. It's a fascinating history of serial killers from the stone age to the present. That's called sons of Cain. And you don't have to write that title down right now. You can go to our website, truecrimegarage.com, click on the recommended page. And we have a lot of recommended books and videos and stuff for you there. Captain, I want to thank you for joining me in the garage and a big cheers to you, sir. Happy birthday to you. Uh, old, decrepit man thank you and thanks to everybody out there for joining us in the garage we want to see you back here next week until then please be good be kind and don't litter you are bpm's high sweat dripping body moving tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aw, i mean just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not 